Laura, great job. I really like that video, especially with the music. That was fantastic. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being with us and joining us in our new series entitled, What Is It That You Do Here? I don't know if you know this, especially if you don't know me, but my favorite movie series ever is Back to the Future. What? Some would call the first movie in the trilogy the perfect movie, and while I tend to enjoy Back to the Future 2 a little bit more because I'm not a purist, I do agree that as far as movie making is concerned, the first one is pretty spectacular. I think the draw for me is that time travel, that while I don't believe it's currently possible, I'm pretty excited about the idea of it in this movie and in this trilogy, and the changes that may or may not happen when someone goes back in time. And while this is all fantasy and science fiction, the imagination involved gets me pretty excited because it's a fun expedition for my mind. Possibly the thing that most people have loved about Back to the Future, and I promise this is not a sermon on Back to the Future, is nostalgia. It was released in 1985, but much of the movie takes place in 1955, where the sets uh, in a specific town called Hill Valley are redone to reflect a 1955 small town America, which many watching the movie in 1985 would remember and feel a sense of nostalgia. That was 30 years prior to those watching it in 1985. And while I think it's mind-blowing, the fact that 30 years ago from today was actually 1993. It feels more like the 80s were only like 20 or 30 years ago. Today we begin a series that hopes to help us understand what we value as a church and emphasize and what we spend our time on and what we spend our treasure and our talents on most as a church community. But while I look to the present and the future, I can't not think about the past and look back. As I prayed through and talked with people within this community known as Church of the Valley, I was struck by how diverse we are. As far as where we came from, our upbringings, the beliefs that we inherited or were taught. And I think it is very weird and awesome. It's a very weird and awesome thing to be part of a church community that predates my own existence by about 27 years. So I wanted to create a series that helps those who are here and perhaps those who are not sure what we do and, or why we do what we do, and perhaps those who think they know why and what we do here, to all possibly get on the same page. Historically, we, like the Church of Acts, are a community of people who believe and live by the truth that Jesus is Lord. Church of the Valley began around 1952, when a group of individuals wanted to start a church from a church in the backyard of a house just down the street from where we currently are. From that full backyard of people, they decided to purchase some land that consisted of where we currently are, which is about three acres, and another few acres were purchased by Church of the Valley, and Church of the Valley took it upon themselves to build what we know as Valley Village, the retirement housing across the street from this church campus. Fun fact, we are no longer, we are current, we are no longer the same entity, we're separate entities, but their legal business name is Church of the Valley's Retirement Home. That's the fun, that's for free. Also, 
I couldn't verify this by the time I was writing the sermon, but I've heard rumors that many decades ago, Church of the Valley also donated the land that Mission Skilled Facility on this side of us sits on. Here's why I share that. Church of the Valley has cared for and attempted to help the city of Santa Clara for well over 70 years. Church of the Valley has had some amazing music programs, which our very own Barbara Simmons, who's up in the cheap seats, has been a part of for close to 70 years now as the church's organist. And as she likes to say, when I got hired six years ago, she was sure that she would then retire. Whoops. Too bad, Barbara. We just love having you around. And she has been a vital part of our community and staff that she just hasn't, and she hasn't slowed down even close to what she expected that she might. Barbara has been here for all five of the lead pastors that have been pastoring at Church of the Valley. The first one was named John Carroll. He was the founding pastor. He began in 1952 and was here on this campus pastoring and shepherding until 1971. Then after that was a pastor named Clement Walker, who was the lead pastor from 1972 to 1979. After that, Daryl Higgins took on the lead shepherd role for about a decade from 1979 to 1989, and I just found this out. He just retired leading a church in Texas in 2022. And then from 1990 until about 2015, Pastor Pat Novak was the lead teacher and shepherd of this community. And then I came in 2017. And I decided as I went through many different photo albums and historical documents that it probably wouldn't do justice, the history in just one sermon of all the things that have taken place here at Church of the Valley and what God has done in these 70 years or so. Now, my hope is that we as a church community exist to make much of Jesus. That's why we're here, to introduce you to him so you would know him better if you have already met him, to grow to look more like him. And no matter what we are doing, we connect it to Jesus and his gospel. In fact, when speaking of Jesus, we often say things like, Jesus is God with skin, or Jesus is the gospel personified which we believe and we attempt to proclaim and explain to those who will listen. But why is our church all about Jesus? Especially when, sadly, that probably isn't necessarily as normal as we'd want it to be, even in churches that claim that they're Christian. I can't speak for other communities, but I can speak for why we make it about Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, if you want to turn on your app, We're going to start in Matthew 16, which is a very familiar passage for some of us. Now, it leads up, or what we're going to read leads, it's from this discussion that we will hear between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus had performed miracles, like feeding the 5,000. He had walked on water, and then he fed the 4,000 with humble means. But in all of this, Matthew continues to point out that the Pharisees, who were the teachers of the law, who justified themselves by their morality rather than by faith in God's own Son and His Word, these Pharisees were continually offended by Jesus and were threatened by His following and were attempting to test Jesus and get Him to misstep so they could bring charges against Jesus for blasphemy. But we get to hear Jesus speaking with his disciples, the ones who were following him, about what people believe Jesus to be, 
who he was, and then we'll see the contrast of the people who are Jesus' disciples and who they believe that Jesus was and is. So let's pick up in Matthew 16, verse 13. Here's what it says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Now, it is this question that I think prepares and illuminates what the motivation behind any gathering in a Christian church and participating in a church community is all about. The answer to this question will focus a gathering of people in what they do and what they say and how they make decisions and what they value and what they emphasize and what they talk about most. Jesus never asks a question out of ignorance. It's not like he asked this question and was like, what are they going to say? He knows what they're going to say. He knew exactly how he was being misinterpreted and misidentified. But Jesus asked this question to expose something in the hearers' hearts. He asked the disciples who people in general believe that he is. Most considered him a prophet, a special prophet, but a prophet, maybe a reincarnation, or maybe he was like John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or some other prophet. Surely he had a connection to God. But assuming Jesus was connected to God makes your faith in Jesus no stronger than, say, a Muslim who also believed that Jesus was special but refused to believe that he was any more connected to God than a prophet. But then Jesus says, what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? He is asking this question to men who had spent day and night with Jesus for quite some time at this point. And he knew their answer, but was going to have them not only confess, but he was going to have them proclaim. He was going to have them testify, as you and I will hear who those closest to Jesus and his ministry believed about him. So verse 15, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter, the spokesperson for the disciples, testifies, he confesses that the disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. The Messiah is far and away a larger assumption than a prophet. A prophet spoke of God, and Messiah was the promise from God to his people. And Jesus being the son of the living God means that in essence, he is equal to the Father. If Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and did nothing to back up this claim, then he was guilty of blasphemy. But I don't know anything or anything that can back up one's claim of not being of this world than not staying dead. You know what I'm saying? And our unapologetic opinion at Church of the Valley is that we exist to make known that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God and that he is alive and life is available in his name through his finished work, the gospel of grace. And so everything we attempt to do has a filter of how does this further the message of the gospel of grace? How does this further the message that Jesus is alive? But being about the gospel personified, Jesus Christ means that we do some things that not every church does. And we don't do everything that other churches do. 
Not because we think we're better, not because we think we're worse, but because our emphasis is making known that Jesus is the Christ. So today, we're going to begin this eight-week series about what it is that we do here, and I'd like to take us back, back to the future. Well, not exactly, but back to Ephesians. The very first letter that we studied as a church after I became the pastor in July of 2017, it was the book of Ephesians, and we entitled the series Horizons, as each and every person has a type of horizon that they view the world through, and the book of Ephesians is one that many people come to with different horizons, with different perspectives, with different views, and it's offensive, possibly and probably, for those who don't want to make Jesus the Messiah. So let me take you to the passage that we probably quote, honestly, in 50% of the sermons we preach, because it's so foundationally clear to what we believe and how we believe it. Salvation in every religion that I know of has to do with man working their way to God through some moral code and keeping of that code, and it is man-centered because it is man-initiated and man-enacted. But in Christianity, which I truly believe differentiates itself from a religion because it's a relationship with God through Jesus, we get to come to God because not only does God initiate us, to him, but he gifts us the way in the person and work of Jesus and gives us the faith to trust him. So, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Grace, it means unmerited favor, it means an undeserved gift. It is by unmerited favor that anyone becomes a Christian, that anyone gets saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wages of sin, which is death. We are saved from death because all have sinned and so everyone deserves death. That seems like some pretty bad news, huh? You might have been like, Pastor, I came to church to be uplifted, not beaten down. Well, here's the thing. The bad news accentuates how great the good news is. And let me just be Northern Californian, it's hella good news. You and I, we deserve death. So God, in his mercy and his goodness and his love, gives us what we do not deserve in grace. He gives us salvation. He gifts us his son's perfect record, his perfect life lived. God, when he looks at those whom he has saved by grace through faith, sees not our disability to obey to, and to love God and love others, but instead he sees Jesus. And I don't know of any better news that when God the Father looks at Tim the sinner, that he sees God the Son in Jesus Christ. And that's true for you as well if you've committed to Christ. But not only is, that, is it good news that we are saved by grace, but it is through faith. And faith, which is often seen as just acknowledging something, is really about trust in action and the ability to put into practice what one believes, faith. It is according to this passage, faith is also a gift of God. So how are you saved? By a gift of God. That is grace being received by faith. And who gets all the credit? Who gets all the praise? God, him alone. Because it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that you and I can be called children of God. 
So look at verse 9. It is by grace you have been saved. And then verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. So why do we make this point over and over and over again, and not just in here, but also in children's ministry? Because to believe that you contributed to your salvation is to make yourself equal with God, and you're great. Let me be clear. You look marvelous. You are really special. What your mom said about you, true. But listen, you suck at being God. You just do. I'm a terrible God. Ask my wife. I'm terrible at it. And as Jonathan Edwards points out, and we quote this a lot, you and I contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And I've seen time and time again people who might say they were saved by God, they say they're a Christian, but believe and act like God was lucky to save them. And that makes the gospel about them. And the gospel ain't about us. It's about Jesus. And that is the grace that one receives. It's all about Jesus. And so our identity can be placed in him, and we are a new creation, and we are created in Christ Jesus. And as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So whether we gather, whether we scatter, when we meet on a Sunday corporately, during the week in smaller groups, or even individually or in one-on-ones, our desire is that Jesus would be exalted, lifted up, made much of, not because we are Jesus fans, but because we believe that when God rescues us, we become followers of Jesus. And that following is what each person who has breath in their lungs was created to do. But often, with being a follower of Jesus, there's this thing called legalism that sets in. We can forget how we were justified. We can forget how we were forgiven of our sins. We can forget how we were saved. We begin to discount the grace that we received, and we begin to exalt the goodness we perceive we have on our own. We think that we are justified by what we do rather than by whose we are. And this disease, legalism, is often what keeps people from coming to Christ because we refuse to have God overrule us, and we justify ourselves by how good we think we are. It can happen before we come to Christ, and sadly, it's what we fight against once we come to Christ as well. We become like the Pharisees, who believed their righteousness was based on how they behaved rather than a gift from God in the person and work of Jesus. And as a pastor in San Diego named Larry Osborne once said in his book, Accidental Pharisee, becoming a Pharisee is like going to Denny's. No one ever plans to go there. You just end up there. <laughs> it's true. I've never been like, no one's ever been like, hey, bro, you want to meet me at Denny's? Nope. So something I would say we value is that we don't focus on us trying to clean ourselves up as a church in order to come to Christ. Rather, we want people to know that holiness and following of Jesus is out of a response to God's love and his grace, so the credit doesn't go to us. The credit goes to him. The credit goes to Jesus, because it's all about him. 
But as the gospel was making its way through Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth, there were many Jewish Christians who were having a tough time with the fact that the irreligious, the Gentiles, could also receive grace from God. Because if they said it or not, they kind of didn't believe that the Gentiles deserved grace, which is exactly the point. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. And no one who thinks they deserve grace can receive it. Let me say that again. No one who thinks they deserve grace can receive it. So when this question of the irreligious becoming Christians came up, many of the apostles and the elders in the early church got together to discuss this very topic, and we studied this in our series, Acts, the actions of the apostles by the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to take you back again to Acts 15. And and I'm going to read for a minute. And so I'm going to ask you, if you can see, if you're willing, would you grab the Bible in front of you or go to your app? Would you go to Acts 15? Because even though it'll be on the screen, there's something about reading the words right in front of us. It It makes it just a little more personal. So Acts 15. Acts 15. And I'm going to read for a bit. Hopefully you can follow along. Hopefully the translation isn't too different. Acts 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. What a big deal. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the parties of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, real quick, as we studied this passage in our Acts series, we studied this passage on October 30th, 2022. So you were probably thinking about what you were going to be for Halloween at this point. We made the point that many of us in the church still expect people perhaps not to be circumcised per se in order to come to Christ, but they, that they have to clean themselves up somehow or act a certain way or be religious outwardly to the extent that others can see. And what I want us to understand in July 2023 is that grace does not have a condition attached to it or a religious working in order to earn or receive. It's not about anything we do, but what Jesus has already done. So let's keep reading. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of a Gentile a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have ever been able to accomplish or bear? 
No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James, Jesus' half-brother, yo, James spoke up. He said, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So here is James's prophetic words. Verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. James understood that much of what was expected of the Jew or the Jewish Christian was not expected of a Gentile, not because they are better or worse, but because their tradition and understanding of God and how he was revealed was different. But James also understood that many of the traditions that he had embraced and he had adopted, being a Jew, were not what the Gentile was taught nor required. And so as we as a church today embrace the grace that is given in Jesus Christ and understand and acknowledge that grace is a gift that is undeserved, we too can help others know Christ through the undeserved gift of grace in the person and work of Jesus, which does not require an external work or, or, or an external look to earn one's salvation, but is a God-given faith that works out one's salvation in fear and trembling and joy and praise. We follow because we have been called by God. We receive grace through a faith that is put into action. We do not earn. We do obey through trusting God as his word and looking to Jesus, not just as an example, but as our Lord. So let's not make it hard for those who, I don't know, maybe didn't grow up in the church or the traditions of being a Christian. Let's not make it hard for them to come to Jesus. The reality is that God will take you as you are. And someone needs to hear that today. He just won't let you stay there. Because one who has a genuine faith, God grows them over a period of time to look more like Jesus. So holiness, it's not attained through how moral you are. Holiness is gifted to us through Jesus. And we begin to act not just more moral, but more Jesus-like as we follow and trust him at his word. And for James and the apostles, they knew that the Jewish Christians had learned that their traditions of worship, abstaining from certain things, didn't earn their salvation, but it was a way that they were taught to worship God. So James gave the Gentiles this request, verse 20 and 21. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So instead of walking through the specifics to why James recommended what he just did, you can hear all about it in a sermon called 
grace for the win when we covered this passage back in October of 2022. But James shared what he could to help both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians understand and sacrifice for one another. So church, what is it? This is applicable to you. What is it that we are sacrificing so that those who are yet to know the love and joy and peace of our Savior Jesus can come to know him? Are we willing to give of our time? Maybe talk to people that are heavenly sandpaper or extra grace required? Are we willing to give of our talents and serve in the church so the gospel can be proclaimed and people can engage with us through service? Are we willing to give up our treasure for Jesus' church to make much of him? Do we give of our offering? Do we give money not because we want to give a tip, but do we give money because we are saying, Lord, my wallet is not my God. You are, and I trust you with my finances. If you want to know if you're devoted to Christ, I guess you could ask yourself, have and are you giving of these three things? Not for your glory, but for God's glory, so more and more people can know Jesus and grow to be more like him. So over the next eight weeks or so, it's going to be seven weeks real soon, we will do all we can to make clear what it is that we do here and why we do what we do. But look, last passage, and then we close, how the writer of Hebrews puts it in chapter 3 of Hebrews. The writer says this, Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and our high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus, verse 3, has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future, but Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and hope in which we glory. So church, what is it that we do here? Well, the why behind every what is Jesus. We do what we do to proclaim Jesus crucified and resurrected. We do what we do to introduce you to Jesus and know that you also can be adopted into God's family through the life and through the death and through the resurrection and through the exaltation of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven or in heaven, that one can be saved. And we as a church community do not just want to see people saved, but we want to see people continue on in their Christian lives as God sanctifies us to look more and more like who? You guessed it, Jesus. For the past six years, I've been asked, what type of church are you at? <laughs> you ever been asked this question? What kind of church is it? That's fun. And I haven't really known how to answer this question. Because if I say Christian, which we are, that also means that we could be the same type of church who wants to protest against certain people's funerals and makes our faith all about what we're against rather than whose we are. If I say non-denominational, that comes with its own baggage because the non-denoms tend to be a type of church that doesn't want to answer to anyone. If I say a gospel church, I think people assume we're more like the church in Sister Act than we actually are. Eight people have seen Sister Act in this room. That's terrible. 
So for years, I have said that we are Jesus's church. We are a Jesus church with almost a question attached to my tone because I don't know what the hearer will understand when I say that. But here's the thing. We are a church that is all about Jesus and we aren't just about him because of his good teachings or his morality. We are all about Jesus because he traded his life for ours, church. And you know what he did that we couldn't do? It wasn't die. All of us are going to do that eventually. It's what sets him apart from every other religious main person. My God, he didn't stay dead. He rose. He rose from the dead. Jesus is as alive today as he was on the third day. And man, we better tell somebody. And when someone asks me about what kind of church we are from now on, I'm going to say this. Jesus church, because he died for my sins. And guess what? He rose from the dead. That's what this church is about. The past five weeks, I have had off from sermon prepping and preaching, and I decided to use that time to work on what is known as our statement of faith, where we will have on the website what we believe for those who want to snoop or see in on what our church is all about and what we believe without stepping inside of the building, but also for a future class that we want to offer as a church to take every person who participates at this church through so we can hope, hopefully be more on the same page about what we believe specifically about Jesus. Now, I stole, or as pastors call it, borrowed, copied and pasted, changed words to come up with words that we would use here. And while much of our faith, statement of faith is pretty consistent with other churches and what we agree with and co-labor with around these other churches because they proclaim the gospel, when I've been asking people in this community to take a look at what I created, our James Franco had a pretty amazing take on a portion of the statement of faith that I asked him to edit and share insights on. He had a few edits, and I've in included those, and Mike's going to change them probably, but it, it was good. But the thing I wanted to point out was this contribution, which I really think sets up the entire statement of faith, as well as any I have ever seen. And it is so on brand for us as a community here as why we believe what we believe. Or maybe it's a disclaimer, or maybe it's a preamble. We haven't come up with the specific thing, but here is what the quote says as you begin to read our statement of faith. We are completely convinced of the life and the work and the death and the resurrection of the historical Jesus of Nazareth as described in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And through the resurrection of Jesus, which we believe is foundational, is proven historically and supported biblically. The resurrection validates that Jesus as the Son of God, and from this we can understand the rest of Scripture. Based on this conviction and revelation of God in His Word, we affirm the following things about God. Man, the first time I read that, it gave me chills. And the reality is that what we do and what we believe is all based on the reality that we believe Jesus rose from the dead, and that's why we proclaim what we proclaim. And I love this because it makes known that any and everything we believe is not just because the Bible says so, even though we have a very strong stance on how convinced we are as the Bible was originally written, it was written by God through the Holy Spirit using human authors to reveal God's perfect will without mistake or error. But this points to what we make the main thing, Jesus, and his resurrection from the dead that validates 
all that we believe about who he is and what he does. So he, be prepared to answer when asked, what type of church is this? You're a part of a Jesus church, one that is convinced that Jesus died for us and physically rose from the dead. So I'm going to invite the Millers to get out of here because you have to catch a plane. Please, please go. Bye, guys. But I want to, I want to conclude with something that I uh, is an excerpt from Tim Keller's sermon. Tim is the smarter Tim, as I like to call him. And Tim Keller just passed away, and he had this sermon titled "True and Better." And so, worship team, why don't you come on up and get prepared as I read this and as we close the teaching. I think Tim made it more poetic and powerful than anyone else could, making the same point that we're making today about what this church is about. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us or given to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, has blood that cries out for our acquittal, not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar to go out into the void, not knowing whether he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can say to God, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled with God and took the blow of justice we deserved so that we, like Jacob, receive only the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses. Jesus is the real Passover lamb. Jesus is innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's really not about you. It's about him. Let's pray. Jesus, you are true and better. And I can't imagine living my life, doing a job, uh, getting older, decaying, 
and leaving maybe a little bit of money for my kids as the purpose of this life. I believe with all of my heart that living for you is what we were created to do. Why? Because 2,000 years before I even existed, Jesus, you lived the life I couldn't. You died the death I should have, and you physically rose from the dead. And so may we be a church that never apologize for the fact that we want to make known that Jesus is as alive today as he was on the third day. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. As we respond in musical worship, may you speak to us in a way maybe we weren't expecting before we walked in here today. And may we leave with a sense of wanting others to know, Jesus, you're the point. And you loved us. And you still love us. And we get to spend eternity with you, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.